Welcome to 2021, Lord Jesus. Hey, touch your neighbor and say, you made it. And then put some hand sanitizer on your hands. I want to welcome you and thank you for being here at chapel to start your year off right. For those of you in the room, thank you for joining us and being part of our family. For those of you online, I want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, if you can do us a favor, just let us know where you're from. We've had people uh, actually from Panama City, Panama, uh, join us through COVID and part of our online campus. People all over America. So we just want to say thank you. Let us know where you're from by dropping a comment there on Facebook or on YouTube. I've uh, got a lot of good stuff going on. And I just want to encourage you to start your year off right. That many times how you kind of set the direction for the year or the commitments you make at the beginning of the year determine kind of the rest of the year. And so some of the opportunities that Pastor Dylan was just talking about, a couple things you can do to really start your year off in the right direction with a fresh start is one is pick a Bible reading plan. I pick a Bible reading plan every single year. It's different this year. I'm doing a, a five-day-a-week plan. I read through the whole Bible in one year through five days a week. I got one for my kids. I've had to pay them $5 a week to finish their Bible reading plan. Toy's like, I can't believe you're going to pay them to read a Bible. I'm like, as long as the Word gets in them, I will do it. You think about it, marketers and advertisers are spending millions of dollars to get information to them. I can at least spend five bucks to get the Bible and the Word of God into them as well. So start the year off. There's plenty of resources. Go to the Bible.com uh, or YouVersion Bible app. There's plenty of, of Bible reading plans for you to choose from, but also prayer and fasting, which we're starting this Friday. You can choose any type of fasting you want to, whether that's social media. I'm doing a Daniel fast. It means basically I'm going vegan for 21 days. And all fasting does is really just remove the obstacles that prevent you from focusing and hearing the voice of God in your life. And some of the testimonies and stories we have, uh, Chad and Tracy Burdine, he's one of our drummers, uh, two years ago, they went through a season of prayer and fasting with us. They'd never fasted before. And in that season, all these things started moving that they didn't know were moving and ended up getting the piece of property, which is now Picket Place downtown, that actually brought their family together. They're working all over Tennessee and Alabama. And God moves when you prepare a place for him to move in. And so fasting is literally removing things out of your life, out of your, your attention span, out of your body, so that you can clearly hear God's voice and see him move. So that's number two. And number three, next Sunday we're going to have baptisms at the end of service. So I encourage you, maybe last year was a year that was a little off for you. Maybe you went through a season of kind of turning away from God or even just kind of putting God on the back burner. And you want to start with a fresh commitment that Jesus, I'm living my life for you. Or maybe you went through some decisions that impacted your life. You want to appeal to God for a clear conscience of what it says in the Bible. That you want to be baptized. Just say, I'm starting fresh. I'm letting the past go behind me. And I'm going to start with a brand new commitment to Jesus. You can do that next week as well. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. We'll be in Acts chapter 1 uh, today. And we're going to start a series called 10 Qualities, uh, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. 10 Qualities is kind of our values that we want to see. It's based off a book. It's 10 qualities that move you from a believer to a disciple. We don't want a church full of people that just believe in Jesus because it says demons even believe in Jesus. We want people that are totally committed and sacrificing to follow Jesus from here all the way into eternity. And so when it comes to 2020 and looking at 2021, there's, there's lots of things that happened in 2020. And one of the things that I, I noticed that happened is there was winds of change happening in our society, in our culture, and in our lives. So the winds began to blow. And, and wind is interesting because wind has the ability to create but also destroy. Wind can create power in, in a wind turbine or I've watched a YouTube video where a guy literally put a wind turbine on the front of his truck to see if he could, he could make his truck run with just wind power. 
And he was calculating the wind power versus the wind resistance, meaning wind can get you to where you need to go or it can prevent you from getting to where you need to go. Wind has this amazing ability to move you closer to your destiny or farther away from your destiny. What makes the difference is how do you respond to the wind? Do you work with the wind or do you fight against the wind? And in 2020, we saw the winds were kind of blowing all the dust, all the dirt, and exposing the foundations of our lives. Winds of politics exposing our true belief systems. The winds of protest exposing racial roots or racist roots or hatred roots or whatever it may be. We saw winds that started blowing across our relationships because you were stuck in the house with your wife for six months. The foundations of relationships were exposed. And that's what wind does. Wind removes things and it moves things. And one of the prophetic words that uh, Pastor Lee Cummings, one of our overseers here, shared with us early on is this amazing concept that I want to share with you. So one of the things that has happened in the American church that I believe is killing America is that the American church is so corporate and free market minded that we look at the church as a corporation or an organization. And so in order to do that, we start to measure the church just like organizations or corporations or stockholders measure the church. What are the metrics? How do we count the church? And so the American church counts the church. How many people are there on Sunday morning? How many people show up online? How many people are giving? How many people are serving? It's a, it's a quantity concept. How do we count and measure the church? And so we have things like Outreach 500 or Outreach 100 where the fastest growing and largest churches, the most amount of people we can count. But that's how the world measures the church. And what we see in Scripture, what I believe God is doing right now in America is he's changing the way we measure the church because we may count the number of people in the room, but God weighs the church. God weighs the quality of the church. God weighs the, the power of a church. When you look in the book of Revelation, he never counts the number of people in each one of the seven churches. He weighs the heart of the church because here's the difference. When the winds begin to blow, if you're counting the church, it's just a bunch of feathers. And when the wind blows, what happens to the feathers? They go. But if you weigh the church, the rocks never moved. See, the church is supposed to have a weightiness to it. A weight of the power of God. A weight of the holiness of God. A weight of the heart of God. And the people should have the exact same qualities that God has in us. And we've become a lukewarm, worldly church in the name of thinking we're doing well because the church in America was growing. But what we realized is once the winds begin to blow, the church begins to scatter. And God could care less how many feathers are on the table. He cares more about what is going to sustain and remain when the winds of culture blows across the church. 
What's going to stay and remain when the winds of persecution come against the church? He cares more about what's going to remain when the winds of politics blows against the church. God is looking, when he weighs you, what are you going to weigh? And the difference will determine what God can do in and through the local church. In Acts chapter 1, if you would stand to your feet as we read this together. And I made a commitment. I'm bringing a paper Bible everywhere I go with me this year. I told my kids, I told Toya, she said, I like reading it on my phone. I said, that's great. But you know what they don't know? When you're on your phone reading your Bible, when you're sitting at Publix or waiting to pick up your kids, they don't know if you're on social media or if you're reading your Bible. If you have your Bible, they know exactly what you're reading. And it becomes an evangelistic tool for people to know who you are and whose you are. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. It says this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. Everybody say upper room. Where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Everybody say prayer. prayer. Not to Beth Moore's Bible study. Not to Joel Steen television broadcast. Not to a chapel service, but to Prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. It says this, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were suddenly, or they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Everybody say wind. Wind has the power to create or the power to destroy. And all of a sudden, this wind comes through, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your church. And I pray in these next few moments, you just expose to us in our hearts if our commitment to you, our commitment to your son Jesus is that of a feather or it's weighted as a pillar that the whole world can see who our Savior is and what he's done for us. Father, help us to grow and become more like you. And Father, let us please you in everything we do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So these two scriptures, Acts chapter 1, what had happened was Jesus in verse 8 had just told the disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise to come to you. That promise was the Holy Spirit coming upon them. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the parts of the world. So they leave what Jesus has said to them and they go back to this upper room. The upper room is not a new phenomenon or a new location. It's not a new place. It's not a, a new destination. It's something they're familiar with. It says this, the definition of return is to come back to a place or a person or the act of coming or going back to a place or activity. He's asking them to return to the upper room. Now, the upper room, to understand what I'm saying, is not like go find a new place, go find a new church, go find a new location. The upper room, this upper room, was the same place where they experienced the last supper with Jesus. It's the same place where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. It's the same place where Jesus described to them that Judas would betray him 
and sell him out. It's the same place that when Jesus revealed himself after the resurrection, it's the same upper room where Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. It's also the same place in John chapter 20 where Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into them before the day of Pentecost. So this upper room is not a new location. It's a place of familiarity where they have experienced God before. It's a place that experienced the move of God. It's a place that experienced Jesus. It's a place that experienced his teachings. It's a place that experienced his serving them. It's a place familiar. And what that tells me, in this season for them that was chaotic, these disciples followed Jesus. They watched him be crucified. They watched him be buried. They watched him get resurrected. All these changes are happening. All this wind is shifting. Jesus is now leaving to go to heaven to leave them on their own to send his Holy Spirit. And in the middle of all these shifting winds of the world around them, get this, in the middle of all the changes going on around them, going on around their relationships, with their families, with persecution, with politics, with the government, all these changing winds, Jesus' command is to go back to something familiar. Because you can't experience the new of God until you go back to the familiar things of God. And we as people are so quick to want something new, we lose what's familiar. I remember when I was in a difficult season and we were transitioning out of a church and my pastor, Pastor Maury Davis, told me, he said, go back to the last place you heard God speak to you. Go back to that place and until he speaks again, stay there. Listen. If you haven't heard God speak to you about what you're doing and where you're going in a little while, maybe it's because he's still speaking to you where you were and maybe you need to go back to the last time God spoke to you and hear what God has to say. Some people, and and I'll say this as clearly as possible, there's many people that that change churches, especially in the Shoals, transition churches, and maybe you've been sitting here for a while and, and you said, you know what, I haven't heard God speak. Maybe you need to go back to the church you came from and make things right there Then maybe God will clear that pathway between you. Then maybe God will start speaking into your life again. God's not going to show you something new until you go back to something familiar. He also told them, go. Go back to this upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit. Meaning that until you can obey God with now, you can't trust him with tomorrow. Until you can obey God for what he told you today, why would he ever show you what he wants to do tomorrow? Everybody wants to, God, what's your purpose? What's your plan? What's your vision? What's your future for me? And until you're obedient with today, why would God ever reveal to you tomorrow? And I think that's why God could trust the disciples is because when he said, I want you to go and wait. Now I have an amazing mission for you. But I need to be able to see if you can wait with 120 other Christians in one room until I show you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in the room with my family for 10 days, there's some chaos brewing. Can you imagine 120 Christians? Yet their obedience, listen to this, their obedience showed God that he could trust them with the power from heaven. 
Because obedience in the Bible does not mean legalism. Obedience in the Bible does not mean, mean fundamentalism. Obedience equals power in the kingdom of heaven. If you're needing more power, it's always linked to your obedience to what God has showed you and what God is calling you to do. Who doesn't want more power? More power to overcome temptation. More power to push through struggles. More power to overcome addiction. More power to overcome spiritual battles. It always comes through a new level of obedience. A new level of obedience. So one of the things I think is interesting is there's, when you see this upper room, there's actually two rooms at play here. As I unpack this, I want you to realize that when COVID happened and churches were shutting down all over America, many churches were looking at trying to figure out how do we get back to normal? How, how do we just get back to what is normal for us? How can we feel better just keeping everything, going back to a feather-based mentality where we just get everybody together again and we just keep on doing. And our team, our elders, our staff just pulled back and said, no, no, no. What, what is important now that the church is shut down that wasn't important before? Like what, what's important when you can't meet together corporately? What's important that wasn't really as important before? And some of those things that came is that we realized that not just our church, but the church, we had a bunch of people that they don't know how to read their Bible and hear the voice of God and apply it and teach it to their families or to the friends around them. And they were looking for churches to produce another video, to produce another service, so they could get their feed on and then go and live their lives just the same way they were. We realized that if we had a church that had people that could read God's word, hear God's voice, and apply it and teach their families, we would be much more confident that God was using quarantine for his good. But we knew that wasn't the case. We also asked the question, what is unimportant now that was very important before quarantine? And some of the things that we realized was our essentials process. It was great it was moving people from coming to the church to moving through our church to moving into the groups and being a champion and all these things. But when you don't have church, you don't need champions as much. And what we realized was that if we were just making disciples, half the stuff we're concerned about would not be a concern at all. Like we're trying to bypass this process of making disciples. Instead of trying to get people to serve, disciples want to serve. It's trying to get people to get connected to the body. You don't have to. If they're disciples, they want to be connected to the community. So we spent the entire six months trying to figure out how can we move from a feather-based church to a weighty stone-based church. And we walked through this process called Future Church, and there's two rooms. When you think about these disciples, they went to the upper room. So what do you think the other room was? There's an upper room. What's the other room? Very good. If there's an upper room, there's a lower room. Which means the disciples had to go through one room to get to the upper room. They had to walk in the lower room and something had to motivate them to climb up the stairs or steps to make it into the upper room location. 
And so there's two rooms. And when you look at these houses in the Middle East, it was usually a flat-roofed house. And at some point, they would build an extra room on top. They would let neighbors or, or strangers or people traveling or family. It would be the guest house for anybody that came through because in the heat of the summer, the breeze or the wind would blow through that upper room. The only way I can explain it was as in Israel, we we're on the coast, and it's where Herod's palace was. And so it's this amazing, beautiful beach location. But you walk out, and there's these stones that kind of go out towards the beach or towards the ocean or the sea. And there's still the mosaic tile from Herod's house. And they said, this is where Herod built his palace. Out of all the places in the city, this is where he built it. Can you imagine why? And you just feel this amazing sea breeze blowing past you. It was air conditioning in a season before air conditioning. And so the same way the disciples would go up to the upper room, which is the breeze that came by, and that breeze on the day of Pentecost became the breeze of the Holy Spirit. And so there was a lower room, which was the comfortable room. That's where you eat. That's where you hang out. That's the living room. That's the room with a 60-inch flat-screen TV where you can watch Alabama and Najee Harris jump over defenders. It's a place where the lazy boy recliner is. It's a place where you can sit back and be comfortable watching sports or the news or movies or Netflix or Hulu. It's the place of comfort. It's a place of nice padded pews and chairs. It's a place with great lights and sound. But the upper room was a place you had to climb up to get to. The upper room didn't have the amenities that the lower room would have. It was a place of gathering but it was also a place of looking out to see what was going on all around the house. And in Christianity and in church, there's actually two rooms. There's a lower room and there's an upper room. The lower room is a place of consumer-based cultural Christianity. The lower room is a place of consumer-based cultural Christianity. Meaning we've turned the church into a place of how can we get you to be a consumer and give you a product that you would like enough to keep on coming back and keep on putting money in the offering plate. And to be honest, that's how the church growth movement has done is how can we entertain people enough that it feels just, it's clean entertainment, it's good entertainment to get them to come every Sunday for the show so we can keep them right where they are. So we produce things of comfort. We produce things that make you feel as comfortable as possible, even though the gospel even though Jesus never let any single person ever be comfortable anywhere they were. And so one of the authors said this. He said, there's four Ps of the lower room Christianity. It's the place, the personality, the programs, and the people. Meaning, lower room Christianity is built around the place, the location, the building. Well, I like the building. I like the location. It's closer to my house. The personality, I like the preacher. I like his humor. I like how he preaches. I like how he shares stories. Or it's the, the programs. I love chapel kids. I love their groups. I love their Bible studies. Or the people. It's a place where my family's always gone or my friends go or my mom and dad, it's where they go. And so many times we go to church based off those four things. And if any of those four things change or the winds change, then the people change. But the upper room Christianity, upper room Christianity is this place of radical commitment to following Jesus and working with him to fulfill his mission. See, listen, one is about you getting what you need. The other one is about what is God doing and how can I help him with what he's doing? 
One is about how can I sit and receive. The other one is about how can I give back to what God is doing for all he's done for me. One is about me receiving ministry. The other one is about me doing ministry. One is about me being converted. The other one's about me being a disciple that makes disciples. There's two rooms, and we have to realize, am I coming to church? Am I following Jesus just so he can make me feel better about myself? Am I coming to church? Am I following Jesus just so I can feel better about when I mess up? Am I coming just so I can mark it off the box? Am I coming just to fulfill traditions? Am I coming just to please mommy and daddy? Am I just coming to receive something or am I coming? Because Jesus, the man, the Messiah, saved me out of a pit of miry clay. He saved me out of the ditch I drove my own life into. And he called me up out of that pit and said, I want you to walk with me. And as you walk with me, I want you to live like me. I want you to love like me. I want you to walk like me. I want you to do like me. I want to hand over my business, the family business, to you. And that is my life. God saved me from nothing. He doesn't need to give me anything else. I just want to help him do whatever he wants to do. And I'm willing to die. I'm willing to die helping him fulfill his mission here on earth. I want to be in the upper room. I want to live in the upper room. I want to maintain in the upper room. I want to be there because the upper room is this place of radical commitment to follow Jesus. No matter what distractions come my way, I'm going to stay focused on him. It's that I want to make disciples because I've had people disciple me. It's I want to lead people. I want to love people. I want to share with people. And every single person in this room, God has called you to a personal ministry to make disciples of the people around you. God has strategically placed you exactly where you're at. He strategically, prophetically placed you in the neighborhood you're living in. He's preordained and foreordained you to be at the job that you're at, not just to receive a paycheck because he was trying to plant you there as a missionary to reach people that are stuck in the ways of their life and pull them out and disciple them so they can follow Jesus the rest of their entire life. He strategically placed your kids on ball teams with other parents so you could have influence in their lives, so you could have a personal ministry to make disciples, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, but wherever you are, God has strategically placed you there for that purpose. That's the difference between upper room and lower room. A lower room says, if you just come to church with me, Maybe you'll get saved. Upper room says, you're saved. Go. Go into all the world. God has placed the gospel inside of you. You can share it. God has placed the word inside of you. You can teach it. God has placed the spirit inside of you. You can share him. God has called the church to every single person to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just a preacher on the platform. Not just the worship team. But every single person. Pastor, pastor, you don't know, I don't have any influence. Everyone has influence of somebody. God did not save you just so you could be saved. God saved you 
so you can help other people get saved. And my mantra, this new phrase that I'm, I'm living through is, my fruit grows on other people's trees. My fruit grows on my kids' trees. My fruit grows on our staff. My fruit grows on the people I'm mentoring, I'm discipling. My fruit grows on their trees. I don't need my fruit. I'm just watching fruit grow. So my job is to make sure the soil is clean. My job is to make sure the roots are planted. My job is to help prune the things that are taking away from the fruit. My fruit grows on other people's trees. Your fruit grows on other people's trees. So the difference between the lower room and upper room are these. The lower room is all about comfort. Sit back, watch the show. The upper room is all about obedience instead of comfort. That Jesus said, follow me. They said, we got to go back and bury our dead. We have to go back and buy someone. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're not worthy if you got to look back. He says, follow me. Then he says, pick up your cross and follow me. That's not comfortable. But it's obedience over comfort. The lower room is easy to exit when things get difficult. But the upper room becomes a place of refuge when things get difficult. Instead of running away from Jesus when things get hard, I run deeper into him when things get hard. And there's so many people that as soon as something negative happens, they're like, where is God? My mom dies, my dad dies. Where was God? I just have doubts now. Instead of running to God, they run farther away. But the upper room believer, when things happen, they run to him instead of away from him. The lower room requires no real sacrifice or commitment to Jesus and his mission. But the upper room is all about commitment to him and his mission. The lower room is built on a consumer mindset. The upper room is built on a producer mindset. The lower room is full of feathers, but the upper room is full of stones. Those weighty, mature believers who look like Jesus, who love like Jesus, and walk like Jesus. The lower room Great Commission is, Will Mancini said this, go into all the community and make worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few times a month. But Jesus said in Matthew 28, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey or teaching them to observe. Everybody say obey. Not teaching them how to say a prayer at the altar, but teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end. And so there's, there's two things that I believe the upper room creates in us that I believe are vitally important, that I believe are words for this season, for not just chapel, but for the capital C church. And these two words are separation and preparation. Everybody say separation. Everybody say preparation. I believe the two things God is doing right now is he's separating the church from the culture around us, and he's preparing the church to be used by God before he comes back to redeem and bring his church back with him. Separation and preparation. One is lower room Christianity keeps one foot in the world, while upper room Christianity is a lifestyle of separation from the world. So lower room Christianity it, it means I want to be cultural. I want to be around the things of God, but I don't want it to cost me anything. I don't, I don't want people to judge me or think differently of me. So I'm going to keep one world, one foot in the world or one foot in the culture, but then one foot I want to keep in the church. And so what happens is when things are good, you kind of lean in to the church. When things are bad, you kind of lean out of the church. 
And so you have this wishy-washy, lukewarm Christianity. When you're in the upper room, there's nowhere to put your foot outside the door. You're all in. And watch me, one of my favorite writers said this. He said, separation to God and separation from the world is the first principle of Christian living. He said, separation to God and separation from the world is the first principle of Christian living. Why is that important? The whole problem, and I think this is one of the reasons the gospel message isn't connecting, is that the whole problem in our lives, in our eternal salvation, is that we are separated from God because of our sin. And this concept that that God is far away, that God is completely holy, completely sinless, and my sin is preventing me from knowing the God who created me. My sin is preventing me from touching the hymn of his garment that can heal me. My sin is preventing me from being able to commune with the God, the Father who loves me. And sin is a separation, that there's no way to get to God because of the separation unless somebody else makes a way. And so we've come with this, our doctrine of sin has become so small, which then in turn has made salvation a small work. Let me explain, like, if, if sin is just a mistake, you don't need a savior to save you from a mistake. You just need somebody who can erase it off the dry erase board. Well, if sin is just, what well, I messed up and I did this, you don't need a savior. You just need somebody to forgive you. But if your sin is an eternal condemnation of your soul, you don't need a dry erase board. You don't need forgiveness. You need somebody to break you free from that jail so you can access all of heaven for yourself. And since our doctrine of sin has become so small, Jesus has become very small. And since Jesus has become very small, when we need a miracle, when we need Jesus to move, we look to every other solution first because it's probably too big of a problem for Jesus. Sin, here's a couple definitions from sin. Sin is missing the mark. It's not living up to the standard. That's sin. That's the common definition of sin. Sin is missing the mark. But inequity, so sin is you mess up. Inequity is premeditated sin. Meaning, not only am I going to mess up, but I'm going to mess up on purpose. Not only am I going to mess up, but I'm going to choose to do wrong because there's a God in heaven who will forgive me when I mess up. That's iniquity. Then you have transgression. Transgression is a constant lifestyle of sin. That means I'm choosing to love my sin more than to love my Savior. And many times when people talk about their sin, they're not talking about messing up. They're talking about premeditated, I'm going to choose to live a certain way. And when you do that, you choose to separate yourself from the love and the power of God. But Jesus comes and he redeems us and he separates us from our sin, from the penalty of sin, from the, the, the punishment of sin, separate us from that to himself. Where before the devil said, no, they're mine. They're serving me. They're worshiping me. And he's holding on. Jesus says, no, no, they're mine. And he separates you from him to himself. What happens is, many times we want to have one foot in both worlds. I like the forgiveness when I mess up, but I really enjoy messing up. I really love the the fun in messing up. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says this. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and my daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He's saying there's a separation that should exist between light and darkness. Do we go into the darkness? Yes, but we don't commingle with the darkness. He said there should be a difference between the, the upper room and the world. There should be a difference between the culture and the church. And if we were really honest, especially in the South, the culture around us and the church are pretty much the same thing. Yeah, we may play some different music. Sometimes we play the same music. We live a different way throughout the week than we do on Sunday morning. There, there's these things that commingle and what has happened is the church has stopped looking like Jesus and started looking more like the culture around us. Like one of the things that's going on in our house right now with this scripture is one of our girls has a, has a good friend at school who's an open homosexual guy, right? So we've told her, you know, you can hang out with him, but you can't, you can't, you know, be yoked with him. You can't be best friends with him. And she's like, why? He's gay. It's not like he's trying to get with me. I'm like, well, I appreciate that a lot. Like, I really do appreciate that. But it's not about that. His beliefs right now are stronger than your beliefs. He has greater convictions to support his sin than you at 15 years old have to support your faith. And so if you connect with him too much, you'll desensitize to your convictions and you'll empathize with his convictions. And so we live in a day and age where the church is desensitized to our convictions and we empathize with the world's convictions. And in doing so, we've diluted the power of the temple of God. And so what I've told uh, her is I said, listen, I want you to love him. I want you to be there for him. I want you to be friends with him. But you have to prepare yourself first and separate yourself so that way when you do communicate with him, you're communicating to him in a way that's reaching out to him. So I bought her a a book from my friend Landon Schott in Fort Worth, Texas called Gay Awareness, one of the most grace and truth-filled books on homosexuality out there. And I said, when you read this book, we'll sit down and talk about it, then you can start hanging out with him again. Why? You can't reach a world that you're in love with. You can't reach a world that you look like. Because if you act like the world, you dress like the world, you look like the world, what are you going to save them to? Back to the world. Pastor Lee Cummings shared this word back in March. He said, here's what I feel like the world is, what's happening in the world. He talks about Moses had left Egypt. So there's a separation from Moses from the culture of the world. And he said, Moses spent 40 years in, in, the, in the wilderness. He, he has his experience with God. God calls him. God equips him. God sends him back into Egypt. But this time when he goes back into Egypt, he's not dressed like an Egyptian. He doesn't talk like an Egyptian. He doesn't look like an Egyptian. He sounds like he talks like a shepherd. And he said, for years in the church, the world would let the, the church have influence with the world as long as you look like the world. You talked like the world, you dressed like the world, and you acted like the world. 
So we developed this whole culture of celebrity pastors who look more like Justin Bieber than they look like Jesus. In the name of reaching the world. It's amazing because all these pastors that said, no, 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 I'm not being like the world. I just love these people. I, I love these people. I'm trying to reach these people. And at some point, almost every single one of these celebrity pastors has fallen into sin. Because sin is not a line that you tow. It's a cliff you fall off of. And if you keep trying to find the line, at some point you'll fall off the cliff. And God is calling the church this season of separation because he's wanting the church to reach the world, not by looking like the world, but by looking like Jesus. The world is sick and tired of looking at Christians and they look more like analysts on Fox News or CNN. They look more like Justin Bieber than they do Jesus. He wants the church in this, these days before he comes back to look like his pure, unblemished bride. A church without spot. A church full of the love of God. A church full of the power of God. And the only way we can do that is this separation. But also that preparation is lower room Christian is all about immediate gratification. How can I feel better right now, but upper room Christianity is a lifestyle of preparation to be used by God. Meaning one is, I want to feel good right now. I need, I need to see movement right now. I need to see growth right now. I need to see something right now. But upper room Christianity is more about, I'm preparing myself today for what God is going to do tomorrow. I'm preparing myself right now for something God wants to do in 10 years. When you realize Moses is on the backside of the windows for 40 years being prepared so God could use him to deliver his people. Jesus, 30 years being prepared before he went out on mission. There's a principle of preparation before you're used by God. But in church world, we're so quick to want to see it now, 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 now. We don't go through the process of preparation. One author said it this way, most people don't want to be part of the process. They just want to be part of the outcome. But the process is where you figure out who is worth being part of the outcome. I'll read that again. Most people don't want to be part of the process. That's why people will get saved at the altar and never follow Jesus a day in their life. Some people make a resolution, but they never go through the process. They don't want, want to be part of the process, just the outcome. But the process is where you figure out who is worth being part of the outcome. When you read the Bible over and over and over again, it says those who persevere to the end, those who go through the process. God separates goats and sheep and wheats and tares because the process proves the outcome. Second Timothy says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone clean, cleanses himself or cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. Meaning, God gives us a choice. You can be a vessel of wood and clay or a vessel of gold and silver. Some are used for nonchalant purposes. Some are used for special purposes. When you say that with churches, some churches are wood and clay vessels. Some are gold and silver vessels. 
And God says, if you cleanse yourself from all of these things, then you can be this vessel that I'll use for these amazing good works. Because God is coming back for a prepared church. Not a big church, not not an amazing worship experience church, not a great preaching church, a prepared church. A church that's awake, a church that's ready, a church that's expectant for him to come home at any single moment to get us. And so half of what we do, Bible reading plan, is trying to help you prepare to be a utensil, a vessel for gold and silver that God can use that you get the word in you now so when you need it, the word comes out. Prayer and fasting is not about just the church doing prayer and fasting. It's about preparing your heart so that God can use you in 2021 for special purposes as a vessel of gold and silver. And I'm about to close. And Job, it says this. It says, if you prepare your heart, everybody say prepare. If you prepare your heart, meaning it's not God doing it, it's you doing it. You will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery and you will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning and you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest Insecurity, and you will lie down, and none will make you afraid, and many will court your favor. Meaning, when I prepare myself, God takes care of the rest. If I want favor with God, I prepare myself. And I believe this year, I believe there's there's some amazing shifts going on spiritually at Chapel, but also the the, the Capital C Church. And this is what I, I think. I think there's going to be an incoming pressure against the church and believers from the world. I believe they're going to start pushing the church back into the walls of the church. That you can have your faith, just don't bring your faith out on social media. Don't bring your faith out on the public forum. Don't bring your faith into the Shoals Dream Center. Don't bring your faith into outreach. Just keep your faith in the church. Don't bring your faith into the ballot box and your voting. Just keep your faith in the church. And if you bring your faith out, they're going to persecute you and persecute us and try to push us back in. It's going to be some forms of persecution, but it's going to come. But I believe in doing so, that pressure is going to produce an unmistakable favor of God on our lives. Let me say that again. I believe the pressure from the world upon believers and upon the church is going to create unmistakable favor on the church. Much like Daniel. Daniel's being persecuted in the book of Daniel. He says, no, 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 I can't serve you. I'm going to serve my God only. And it created this favor as they persecuted. The more they persecuted, the more they pressured him, the more favor came upon his life. And the way to explain it is, if you're flying, and I'll be flying this week on a, on a nice big metal COVID tube, flying in this airplane, when you get up to altitude, they pressurize the cabin. So there's a pressure on the cabin. Why? Because outside of the airplane, you wouldn't be able to breathe. The air is too thin, it's too light, it's too cold. So it means the culture is not appropriate for me to flourish in. 
The culture, the atmosphere around the plane isn't one I can thrive in. So I'm in this airplane, and as I'm in this airplane, there's pressure, but the pressure actually produces favor where I can breathe. I can travel through the turbulence. I'm not stuck in the turbulence. I can travel to my destination. It separates me from the culture, from the atmosphere, so I can thrive in my God-ordained destiny. The same is true for you. I believe those that are in Christ in this next season, there'll be some external pressure, but there'll be internal favor. And here's where I believe it's going to show up the most. I believe there's going to be Christians starting businesses like this. All over the place, Christians can start businesses in times of bad economic status. And these businesses are going to thrive financially. And people are going to wonder why. The only explanation will be the favor of God. I believe upon our kids, economic downturn, and kids are going to college, kids are dropping out of college, but Christian kids are thriving. Why? The favor of God upon them. And I believe it's going to be a four or five-year season of pressure and favor. But what determines it is are you in Christ or are you in the world? Because if you're in the world, you're going to experience the turbulence. You're going to experience the frustrations. You're going to experience the ups and downs of the stock market. You're going to experience the ups and downs of the media. But if you're in Christ, you're in peace. If you're in Christ, you're in joy. If you're in Christ, you're in protection. If you're in Christ, you're in provision. If you're in Christ, you're in hope. If you're in Christ, you're in love. If you're in Christ, you have every single thing you need. And so for the rest of this entire year, my goal is to move you from the lower room, from consumer-based cultural Christianity to that upper room where you're awakened and you're empowered to live in love like Jesus. As a pastor, that's my job, and I'm going to close. In Colossians 128, it says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That is my prayer, to present you mature in Christ, to present you as a stone, that no matter what winds shift across your life, no matter what winds shift across your family, no matter what winds shift across the politics, no matter what winds shift across the economy, that you're steady in Christ. That when God weighs you, you're weighed as if you're gold in his hands. And so our goal is to build this staircase from the lower room to the upper room to help you get there to this place where you realize I'm awakened I am a child of God. I'm, I'm called to be a disciple maker. I'm called to partner with him and then empowered by the spirit to actually go and make disciples wherever I'm called to make disciples at. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. In order to do that, we believe these 10 qualities we're going to start unpacking show that you're moving from being a believer to being a disciple. Those 10 qualities are being passionately committed to Jesus. Not, not being lukewarm, not being, you know, open to Jesus, not just believing, but being passionately committed to Jesus. And some of you, today's the day, you, you make that commitment. It's not a one-way, it's a two-way commitment. Jesus commits to you and you say, I'm committing my life passionately to follow you. 
extraordinary love for people, the heart of a servant, being sensitive and submitted to the Holy Spirit, governed by the authority of God's Word, lives morally pure, evangelistically bold, engages in biblical communities, just and generous, and lives on purpose. When those 10 qualities are growing in your life, you're growing in your life. And those are the people God can use. So just one moment, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you say, you know what, today's the day. No matter what happened in 2020, could have been a good year, could have been a bad year. Maybe you say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a consumer-based cultural Christian. I just show up, I get my fill, and I leave. And I realize I need to make a commitment to follow Jesus, no matter which winds are blowing in my life. And today I want to honor him by simply making a commitment to follow him. Making a commitment to live my life for him. Making a commitment to love him with all of my heart. By making a commitment to chase after him instead of chasing after sin. That's you. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed just for a moment. So you know, I want to start 2021 with this commitment. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, he said, that's me. I just want to make this commitment today. I just want you to slip your hand up right where you are. Thank you. All over the room. Anybody else? Thank you. Put your hands down. I want to pray for you in just a second. But I want to encourage you, before you leave, there's on our website, there's a church center menu. There's a next steps form in there. If you would just click that and say, hey, I've made this decision to follow Jesus today. I recommitted my life, whatever it may be. Fill that out so we can get you some tools and resources in your hands. But I also want to encourage you next Sunday to find us physically, spiritually God is saying something physically, to mark this through water baptism. So you can feel the cleansing of the water over you and you can come up resurrected in Christ and renewed. Father, in Jesus' name, we bless you in this place. And Father, we thank you for all that you've done in 2020. We thank you for the good. We thank you for your grace that sustained us. We thank you for your provision. Father, we thank you for the time we got to spend with families and, uh, and grow closer together. Father, we thank you for exposing flaws in our lives and exposing roots in our lives and foundations. And Father, we pray for 2021 to be a year we grow from this place into the upper room. That you move us from being lukewarm, from being cultural Christians, from being consumer-based Christians, to being radically committed to following you and fulfilling your mission here on earth. Father, I pray that you begin to stoke a fire within us, begin to prepare us through prayer and fasting and Bible study to produce these 10 qualities in our life so the world can see that we've been with Jesus. Father, for those that raise their hands, I pray that you mark this moment in time. Mark it as a commitment, not between them and a church or them and man, but between them and you. I pray as they've made this commitment, Father, you renew their minds, you renew their souls, you give them a fresh vision and a fresh passion for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.